All right, we'll do this one way or another. At least we have electricity. Um, <clears throat> well, I invite you to take out your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 15, and uh, notes from your worship folders. We get into God's Word together. Well, you know, football is right around the corner. And um, every year the NFL has an all-star game they call the Pro Bowl. Uh, they choose the best players from the AFC and the best players from the NFC. Last year the AFC wore white jerseys and the NFC wore blue. Um, if, you've, if you've seen the Pro Bowl, you know that even though they wear the jersey of their league, they wear the helmet from their team, uh, the team that pays their money. So the game is more of a social event uh, than it is really a game. If you've ever seen it, they don't hit hard. They don't play hard. Um, they, they don't want to mess up their contract. Um, I, I think this is a great example of how we are not to live the Christian life. Um, we become a Christian. We put on the team jersey that says Christ. But the helmet we have says whatever we're really living for. Whatever is anything that, that cries for our attention other than Jesus. So we need to flip that and put on the helmet that also says Christ. And remember that we all play for the same team and it's the gospel that enables us to do that. Paul labored with a number of different ministry partners. Barnabas, uh, Silas, Timothy, Titus, Luke, John Mark. What do they have in common? Uh, you know, it made me think of our staff. We've been ministering together for a long time and what we have in common. Uh, we love each other. We, uh, we have a, a great relationship. Like any partnership, I think we've, we've had the ability to, um, to leverage each other's gifts and strengths and, uh, and that's a joy to be able to experience that together. We trust each other completely. Um, someone says they're going to do something, we know they will because they're people of their word. So what do successful ministry teams have in common? You have that question on your worship folder. Like we've already mentioned love, <clears throat> working together, trust, and we have a common goal. We want to grow in discipleship. We want everyone to grow in discipleship together. We want to see people come to know Christ personally. And we want to reach the world with the gospel. I think it's wonderful that we've been able to give basically a tithe of our people to the Lord, to send them out to, 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 to fulfill the Great Commission. So scripture gives us commands that we're to obey. In fact, if you look on the front of your worship folder, we have those five words there. And Maybe you've looked at those words and thought, well, you know, those are important words. But they're very important because they sum up the great commandment and the great commission. You've got it on your outline. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind is worship. To love your neighbor as yourself is ministry. To make disciples of all nations is evangelism. To baptize is to integrate into fellowship. And to teach them to obey everything I have commanded you is discipleship. There's also consistency and longevity. You know, there are plenty of exceptions, for sure. But the average pastor across America stays in a church 
for six years. The average youth pastor for less than a year. Uh, Eloy, who's on vacation right now, is going on his 39th year. I'm going on my 30th year here at Claremont Emanuel. Nathan is on his 28th, which is shocking because he doesn't look 28 years old. <clears throat> Susan's on her 21st birthday, uh, 21st, 21st year serving year, which you would also think is her 21st birthday, but she's got a son that's almost that age. Uh, Zach is on his 10th. That's longevity. Um, and God has given us godly overseers and, and deacons. That doesn't just happen. Um, that's our shared vision. And, and it may be rare, but I think that it's allowed us here at Claremont Emanuel to, to thrive, uh, to see God do some great things. And I'm so thankful for it and, and so privileged to be a part of what God is doing here at Claremont Emanuel. Um, you know, planting a church is a difficult thing to do. It takes tons of effort. My brother planted a church in Kansas City that by the grace of God is still going strong. Uh, ask any of our missionaries. It's a huge effort. It's a team effort. They don't do it alone. They do it with a team, but it, it just takes so much effort. Paul trained up leaders to take over the churches he started. Uh, he knew he couldn't do it all by himself. He left each church he started in competent hands. And Paul kept dreaming and, uh, and thinking about what God could do through him. Uh, he, he talks in his passage about going to Spain. That was like the, the ends of the world uh, for him. And he was always thinking about the next thing that he could do for the Lord. Maybe that's a question that, that you and I should be asking ourselves. What's the next thing that we could do for, for you, Lord? Maybe we can make that a prayer. Maybe we can make that a daily prayer. Lord, what do you mean to do for you today? How can you use me, Lord? I want to be available for you. You know, I think so, so many times we think, well, I don't have the ability to do something. What is more important to God than ability to do something is availability. And God will give you what you need to do what you need to do, what he wants you to do. One great way to, uh, to check out some possibilities and learn about some ways that God might use you is our ministry fair, which we haven't had in a while, but we're going to be having in a few weeks. And I hope that you'll come, and I hope that you'll visit some tables of some ministries that you think you might be able to plug into and, and, and check them out. Talk to the people at the table about what you might be able to do there. Paul knew that if, that if this mission's journey was going to be successful for the Lord, he needed to have a partnership with the church in Rome. To him, that was a, uh, it was, Rome was a strategic location to be able to um, go forward into Spain and have a ministry. So this is a longer passage. We're going to kind of read it as we go through it. Um, but the first thing we see in, that's unique about the Apostle Paul as we look into his heart is that Paul sees his mission as holy. That's number one on your outline. So verse 14, I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. So Paul commends them for three specific traits. I'll tell you, we could do a whole sermon just on verse 14. Um, but he's identified these traits partly by their reputation 
and partly by the fact that maybe he had met some of, some of the people in his travels who were from the church in Rome. But it was definitely from their reputation. So the first phrase is that they are full of goodness. It's on your outline. Full of goodness. Goodness is moral and ethical purity. So yes, we're all totally depraved uh, because of our sin nature. But when we receive Christ, we receive a new nature. And we have the Holy Spirit living within us. And one of the evidences of that is that we, we can reflect the character of God. And that is in, in especially in the area of integrity and compassion. And so that begs the question, are you a person of integrity? Are, are you a person of compassion? Um, you know, Jesus was a man of compassion. He said that he saw the people and they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things because he was a man of compassion. There's so many other evidences of that. The, the second thing is that they were filled with knowledge, also on your outline. Paul has at least heard, if not seen it demonstrated, that the Roman believers had a mature understanding of the Christian faith. And they understood the issues that were relevant to life as a Christian in Rome. I mean, that's what Paul's been talking about through the book. Think of, of, of reading that book for the first time. They had a strong biblical knowledge of of essential theology by reading through the book of Romans. And starting in chapter 12, he's dealt with some very practical issues, even the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles. And uh, <clears throat> they've got this understanding of those relevant issues. So when that understanding is there, they typically, typically have a good idea of how God can use them. And then finally, they're able to instruct one another. And the word able means power. In other words, they have the authority and the ability to be able to apply their knowledge in a way that is helpful to those who are, who are, uh, that they're teaching. Not just that they have their knowledge, but they, it, it impacts their lives. It was D.L. Moody who said, you know, the Bible was not given to us to increase our knowledge, but to change our lives. So is your life being changed by the word of God? Are you allowing the word to take root in your life and for it to change you? And then finally, they're able to instruct one another. Uh, well, you already said that one, so sorry. So, what, what these are basically describing is a mature Christian. Uh, so let me ask you this question. Do those three phrases describe you? According to this description, are you a mature Christian? Are, are, think of the impact that we have already as a church. And think if, if everyone met that description that Paul uses there in verse 14 of a mature Christian, if, if all of us did that, the, impact that, the greater impact that we could have in our culture, among our friends, as a church. And then starting at verse 15. Yet I have written you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again, because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So Paul is affirming in verse 16 that the Roman Christian's spiritual journey 
was of, of being made acceptable to God and sanctified by the Holy Spirit was happening. And Paul's duty as an apostle was to help the church become strong. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to strengthen the church spiritually. And to do this, he says in verse 15, he's reminding them of these things. So, you know, you, parents will understand this. Maybe you can remember as a child uh, under your parents, when you'd hear something once, you kind of think, well, that's interesting, but you let it slide. You hear it twice, second time, maybe you're intrigued for a little bit, but when you hear it a third time, uh, it, it'll take root. Hopefully, as a parent, you want it to take root in your kids the first time. But sometimes you need to repeat things. And the Bible works that way. So it doesn't always shout things, but it says them over and again so that it, it, until we, we understand it, until it registers. It's like Peter said, I'm not really, <clears throat> in essence, telling you anything new. I'm just giving you all these things to remind you. If you remember back in Romans chapter 1, verse 13, one of Paul's goals in visiting the church in Rome was, says, he says in verse 13 of chapter 1, to obtain some fruit among you also even as among the rest of the Gentiles. And then he took this a, a step further in, in, in sharing his vision with his brothers and sisters in Rome to take the gospel to Spain. And one last thing to point out here, Paul says he's reminding him of these things because, in verses 15 and 16, because of the grace that God gave him as a minister of Christ Jesus. And the word translated minister is the same root word from which we get the word liturgy. So in other words, Paul uses this word and, and he's saying that he sees not just his missionary life, but all of his life like a priest offering a sacrifice of sacred worship to God. Paul saw everything he did as a sweet smelling sacrifice to the Lord. You know, it's common knowledge today that how we perceive ourselves greatly determines how we live our lives. Psychologists are constantly reminding us of the importance of self-image. Imagine then the priestly self-perception that Paul had and what that did for him. All of Paul's life was to him intensely sacred to God. The most mundane daily occurrences were, were holy for Paul. You know, I have a, a friend who wrote a, a book called Splendor in the Ordinary. Uh, his name is Tom Howard. And he basically takes every room in a house and he says, here's what this room symbolizes. Our, our living room symbolizes friendship. As we have friends and invite friends and in our, into our living room, our family room represents the intimacy of the family. Uh, the kitchen is where we invite our closest friends to come. Come join us in the kitchen. Uh, and he goes through every room in the house and he talks about the symbolism of the room. And, and in essence, he's saying, find the splendor of God in everything about your life, everything that you do. So that even the mundane things in your life, uh, th those mundane things were holy to Paul. So however humiliated he may have been in his treatment, he was clothed with Christ in such a way that everything he did was an offering to God. So all of life is to be a worship to the Lord. Uh, 
We're to worship him. We, we come together to worship corporately so that we might live lives of worship during the week. So is your life a life lived in worship to God? Uh, maybe before getting out of bed in the morning out of habit, we, we pause and we talk to God and we thank him for the day. We thank him for a good night's rest. If, we've, if we haven't had a good night's rest, we thank him for the nights that we have had a good night's rest. We, we pray for strength for the day, but we commit every part of our day to him, back to him. We make ourselves available. We say, Lord, how might you use me today? Will you use me? I want to be available to be used by you. You know, it's like Brother Lawrence who wrote a book, Practicing the Presence of God. Show of hands, how many of you have read that classic little devotional book? Boy, more of you need to read that. It's, it's public domain. He wrote it in, I don't know, hundreds of years ago. So I'm sure you could get, it takes like an hour to read. But in this book, he's, he's saying that we need to cultivate a continuous awareness of God's presence, a deep devotion to him in our everyday life. He did it washing dishes in a monastery in France. So no matter what mundane thing you might be doing, whether it's taking a walk or doing the dishes or cleaning your house or going to work or working, all of it, you, you turn into worship to God. You, you say, Lord, I want to do this for you. And we still need a time to set aside to connect with God, a, a personal time of worship, a quiet time, if you will, before God. But Paul says it like this in Colossians 3, do your work willingly as though you were serving the Lord himself. So even the work you do, you should see as worship to God. You do it as though the Lord himself is your master, not your earthly master is your real master. In fact, the Lord Christ is the one you're really serving, and you know he will reward you. So do you see your life as a worship before God? Your work, whatever it is, this is on your outline, is holy to God. Whatever it is, God wants you to see your work as holy. So whether you're a homemaker or a, an engineer or a financial person or you're somebody who's a researcher or you're in the medical field or you're a teacher or an administrator, whatever it is, or a student, whatever it is, you work as a, your work as a believer, your study as a believer is sacred to God. That's the way you need to treat it. And so this sacred view of life was a primary trait of Paul's heart. And it's not just for those in Christian work. It's for, those, for every Christian who works, for every Christian who's retired. Whatever you are doing, you do it for the Lord. The second thing we see about Paul's heart is that Paul wants to glorify God in all he does. So verse 17, Therefore I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way to Elycrium, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. You know, one of the cool things about these verses that, is that in addition to seeing some pretty cool truths, that we also get this glimpse into the heart of Paul. And yes, he was a man of grace, but that guy was tough as nails as well. And he says here, um, in spite of a pretty amazing resume, he describes himself in verse 17 as one who serves God, as a bond servant in some translations. 
And a bondservant was all about the master. And we should be all about the master. William Carey was the great pioneer missionary to India. And when he was on his deathbed, he was visited by a young man uh, who greatly admired this famous missionary. And after a long visit, Carey uh, asked this man to pray for him. And following the prayer, the man turned to leave, and, and he heard Carey's feeble voice calling him back. And, and he said, young man, you've been speaking about Dr. Carey, Dr. Carey. When I'm gone, say nothing, please, about Dr. Carey. Please speak only about Dr. Carey's Savior. That's true for all of us. It's not about us. It's about living for Jesus and making him number one in our lives. And then in verse 19, Paul says that what he has done, he has done through the power of the, of the Spirit of God. You know, ministry is interesting because you can serve, you can do whatever we do, you do in ministry, but it is only the Spirit of God that makes anything deeply spiritual happen in somebody's life. You know, I pray that every Sunday. I study hard every week for the message. And on my way to church in the morning as I'm preparing throughout my preparation, I'm saying, Lord, this is all great, but unless you show up, unless your Holy Spirit works powerfully in people's lives, this is worthless. I can't do it on my own. But that's true for every one of us as we minister. We, we know the Holy Spirit will work through us and use us. You know, imagine that you decide to go sailing one time, but you've never sailed before. And so maybe you go and buy a book on, on sailing, and you read the book, and you talk to people who have sailed before. And, and uh, then you decide one day to go out and rent a sailboat. And you make certain that everything is right, and you've, everything's in working order. You're excited, a little bit afraid. You should be because you've really never done this by yourself. And you put up the sail. And at that precise moment, you learn a very valuable lesson. You can study sailing. You can seek counsel of people who have sailed. You can put your boat into the most beautiful water. And you can successfully put up the sail. But here's the caveat. And it's a huge caveat. And that is that only God can make the wind blow. You're dependent on the Holy Spirit to make the wind blow in whatever ministry you do. When Paul says in verse 19 that he has fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ, He's saying that his work is done in that part of the world. It's, it's complete, and he's ready to move on. Paul mentions all these things here that he's done, but Paul takes no credit. Look at verse 18. In verse 18, he wants everyone to know that Christ has accomplished this through him. And so this is on your outline. His goal was always to give glory to God. We live our lives of worship, and we do everything we do for the glory of God. Paul said it like this in Galatians 6. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean to boast only in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ? One commentator said this that I thought was a great summary of what that means. Listen to this. Boasting in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ means that it's not about what we can do for God, it's about what God has done for us. We have nothing to boast about except the person and work of Jesus Christ. Every ounce of credit for who we are and for the hope that we have goes to the Savior who died for us on Calvary. 
The more we focus on Christ and what he accomplished, the less we'll focus on the world and what we accomplish. When the cross becomes everything to us, the world loses its luster. So is the cross everything to you? Does the world have too much luster? If the cross has its right place in your life, the world will lose its luster. And so we focus on Jesus. We boast in the cross of Christ alone. Paul also told the Colossians uh, that Christ is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead so that he in everything, he might have the supremacy. And we want him to have the supremacy in our lives. God was everything to Paul. Is God everything to you? Is Christ everything to you? Martin Luther said it this way, we always preach Jesus. This may seem to some a limited and even monotonous subject likely to be soon exhausted, but we are never at the end of it. It was Karl Barth who was giving lectures at Yale, a man who deeply influenced Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He wrote the, the church dogmatics about, it would take up about three feet on a shelf, 20 volumes or something like that. It's huge. He wrote everything the church believed about it, he, he wrote there. And when he was giving these lectures at Yale, he did a question and answer time. He was a, a Swiss German, this thick German accent. And uh, a student raised his hand and said, Dr. Bart, what's the most profound thing that you've learned in all of your years of studying theology and writing about theology? And he said this, after thinking about it for a moment, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's profound. That's so deep, so simple, yet so deep. And, and, and so we can plumb the depths. We will never be able to plumb the depths of who Jesus is. And so with Paul, it was with Paul, Christ is the center, and Paul could only boast of him, and we should only boast of Christ. Are you boasting of the cross of Christ? And if we're to have lives like Paul's, our hearts must not only see that our entire lives are sacred, but that our entire lives are to give glory to God. And it's so fitting and it's so right. And this is the way God designed us to live so that, like Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, whether we eat, whether we drink, whatever we do, we do it all to the glory of God. The third thing we learn about the heart of the Apostle Paul, number three on your outline, is that Paul's heart was to take the gospel where Christ had not yet been preached. Look at verse 20. This is, I know, one of the favorite verses of all of our missionaries. The people, this is what Radius is about, to send people to places where, where Christ is not yet known. There are thousands of, of language groups where Christ is not known yet. And that's what we want to do is send people there. And so uh, here's verse 20. It has always been my ambition, Paul says, to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. <clears throat> you know, it was when I first moved to San Diego. <clears throat> it was 1977. And uh, we had heard, my roommates and I from Wheaton College had moved here. We heard that there was a guy, LaVey, I think was his name, uh, who was the head of the Satanic Church who lived here in San Diego. And I said to one of my roommates, well, that would be an interesting uh, person to run into, huh? 
and, uh, and we were talking about it, and my roommate, Phil, said something that I thought was, was very important. He said, you know what? We sure wouldn't need to fear that interaction because we have the power of the Holy Spirit living in our lives. Why would we need to fear anything? We don't need to fear anybody. Uh, greater is he who is in us, the Apostle John writes in 1 John 4, 4, than he who is in the world. We have the power of God living in our lives. We don't need to fear anything. It was the missionary C.T. Studd who said, someone to live within the sound of church and chapel bells. I want to run a rescue shop within one yard of hell. That should be the attitude of all of us. Lord, take me to the most difficult people in my work. Take me to them. And, you know, sometimes it's the, those people that seem the hardest that, that fall the hardest, uh, that come to the Lord in a, in a dramatic way, like the Apostle Paul himself. But we should be able to go and say, Lord, take me to the, the most difficult people in my neighborhood because I want to reach them with the gospel. People that you think, well, they're not interested. I'm never going to talk to them are the exact people that maybe God wants you to go after. Verse 21, rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see and those who have not heard will understand. I think it's fair to say that it was an obsession for the Apostle Paul to go to take the gospel to places where uh, it, it had not been before. He says the same, same, same thing in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, so that we can preach the gospel in the regions beyond you in Corinth, for we do not want to boast about work already done in another man's territory. It was John Payton, the great Scottish missionary, who said this, if I die here in Glasgow, I shall be eaten by worms. If I can but live and die serving the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. For in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Wow. That's the attitude we all should have. I don't care what I do. I'm not afraid of anything, Lord. I will go do anything you want me to do. And then verses 23 to 29 relate Paul's goals to real life. So Paul's first order of business was to take an offering uh, to the poor in Jerusalem that he had collected from the Gentile churches. So let's pick it up at verse 23. But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there. There's that partnership. After I've enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. So Paul's main motive in this offering was to solidify the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles, which we've talked about before. Those guys couldn't have been more different from each other. Um, just like it was for Paul, we can all have goals. We should have goals. Uh, Proverbs says there are many plans in a man's mind. 
but so we should have plans, but it is the Lord's purpose for him that will stand. So we have the plans in our mind, uh, but we hold them loosely because they are not absolutes. Sometimes they happen, sometimes they don't. Like one of my professors at Wheaton used to say, if you aim at nothing, you will surely hit it. So we set goals, but we hold them loosely. And that's what, that's what the Apostle Paul did. He had a goal. Uh, one thing is certain is that, the, that God will teach us about himself in the process, no matter how difficult what we're going through is to get there, whatever God has put on our heart. You have to say that Paul was a pretty optimistic guy as well. Uh, he was sure that he'd come to Rome in blessing. Uh, Paul did deliver the gift to Jerusalem with great success, uh, but he was almost killed by an unruly mob. He ended up escaping by night with Caesar's soldiers, and uh, the boat that he was on that was taking him to Rome was shipwrecked. He did finally arrive in Rome in chains. It's a little bit like D.L. Moody said, you know, I suppose they would say of me, he's a radical, he's a fanatic, he has only one idea. And then Moody says, but it is a glorious idea. I would rather have that said of me than be a man of 10,000 ideas and do nothing with them. So have goals. Follow Christ. See the goals through to the end. Paul did something with the ideas that God gave him. And Paul concludes on this amazingly positive note in verse 29. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. When he wrote it, I don't think he was imagining that he'd be coming in chains, but that's what happened. Um, we should keep this in mind, though. I think, and this is, we see it here, that God is clearly directing Paul's steps, and yet he is encountering hard times all along the way. So Paul was ready for whatever came his way on this new missions trip to Spain that he was taking. Um, and he was ready to go through what he had been through in the first three journeys. What had he been through? Well, he spells it out in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, from the Gentiles, dangers in the city and in the wilderness and in the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, Paul says, there's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. What was Paul's attitude? His attitude was, bring it on. I don't care what you bring on to me. I'm going to keep moving forward. And so I think this is a good reminder, and you've got this on your outline, that great accomplishments for the Lord are rarely achieved without hindrances. So what are the hindrances that you're going through right now? Don't let those deter you from continuing to follow the Lord. One wise author wrote this, if I am told that the road to my glorious destination is marred by loose rocks and potholes, every jolt along the way will remind me that I'm on the right road. That should be the attitude of all of us. Don't be surprised when God directs you and there seems to be potholes along the way. Let them remind you, as this author says, that you're on the right road to glory with the Father. 
So how do we overcome those hindrances? How did Paul overcome them? He had a sustained hope. As we just read, the hindrances were continual for Paul, but he never lost hope. You know, he needed the church in Rome to be his partners, and genuine friends will tell you the truth. They'll give you realistic counsel, but they will also encourage you along the way. They remind us that nothing is impossible with God, that hope is sustained as we trust the Lord and remain focused on a God-honoring vision. And then finally, uh, the last priority for Paul, and one that he wants to be a priority for all of us, Number four, Paul prays and he calls us to do the same. Verse 30, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers of Judea, in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there. Those were his two requests. And both of those prayers were answered. And to those whose hearts, like Paul, uh, request, make the request, please pray for me. That's not a cliche. We need each other's prayers. And when we respond by saying, I will pray for you, that's, that can never become a cliche for us either. It should always be, our prayer should be like Romans 1.9, I think it is, that Paul said, For God is my witness, whom I serve in my spirit, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. Those are the kinds of prayers we should pray for each other. Romans 1.9 kind of prayers, that God is our witness that we're praying for you. And so we, we need to pray for each other. We have to pray for each other. That Paul's heart was somebody that believed in prayer. And then verse 32, so that I may come to you with joy by God's will and in your company be refreshed. Paul's prayer was answered. His life was spared. The church in Jerusalem accepted the gift. He did come to joy with great Rome, uh, to, to, to Rome with great joy. And the government even paid for him to get there. But he got there and, and, he, and he was in shackles. He had been shipwrecked, but he came with joy. I don't think that's the way he thought he was going to come, but he still came with joy. And that's the joy that we need in our lives, in spite of the circumstances we go through. And then the chapter concludes with Paul's benediction in verse 33, the God of peace be with you all. So what's behind him saying, the God of peace be with you? What's behind it is that Paul had the peace of God wherever he was in whatever, and in whatever circumstances he found himself. Whether it was in prison, whether it was a shipwrecked, whether it was in a storm, whether it was in chains, no matter what it was. And I pray that same thing for us, that kind of peace in our lives, no matter what comes our way. You know, Elizabeth Elliot's first husband, Jim Elliot, was killed by the Alca Indians in Ecuador. Uh, she remarried a professor at a school where she was teaching at uh, Gordon-Conwell Seminary, where I attended. And uh, he contracted, he had cancer and died a slow death of, of cancer. And she said that the death of a husband that she had been through twice was just a real challenge for her emotional life. She had just married her third husband, Lars Gren, um, when one of my roommates from Wheaton and I moved into their home as boarders uh, our first year of seminary. Um, 
Lars pointed out to us that in total, her first two husbands had been married. She had been married for seven years. And he said, I'm just trying to outlive both of them together. Uh, I just want to pass that seven-year mark. Um, by the way, they were married for 37 years. Um, but she called the death of her first two spouses. She described it like David does in Psalm 46, when the earth seemed to be giving way and the waters were roaring and the mountains were being cast into the sea. That's what she felt in her life in the death of her first two husbands. And in such a time of personal distress, and she said we needed peace in our, I needed peace in my life. The peace that Paul speaks of in Philippians chapter 4 when he says don't worry about anything, instead pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. So this is different from the peace with God that Paul spoke of back in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, when he says that, therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us on the cross to forgive our sins. So once we have peace with God, then we can, have, we can know the peace of God that Elizabeth Elliot was talking about. And here's what she wrote about peace in those most difficult times. Peace does not dwell in outward things, but in the heart prepared to wait trustfully and quietly on him who has all things safely in his hands. That's the God we serve. He has us, he has all things safely in his hands. And maybe you've lost a job and you don't think you're gonna have enough money to provide for your family or maybe you're, you're having a major health issue or you know a friend who is. Or maybe you're worried about the outcome of something else going on in your life. Maybe someone very close to you has passed away but we must ask for this peace and realize that it's a conditional statement. Tell God what you need, thank him for all he has done, then, then you will know and experience God's peace. But the prerequisite is tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. So do you know the peace of God in your life? First of all, and most importantly, are you at peace with God? Like it says in Romans 5.1. But once you are at peace with God, then you can know the peace of God in whatever you're going through in your life. That's the peace that the Apostle Paul had. That's the peace that I pray all of us have. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, help us to live lives that reflect our commitment to you. To seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, and know that all these other things will be added to us. Thank you, Father, so much for the body of Christ. Thank you for the family of God. Thank you for the family of God here at Claremont Emanuel. Father, I pray that you would help us to rely on each other in the healthiest of ways as we work together to faithfully share Jesus with those around us. Teach us, Lord, to live for your glory, to be committed to praying our worries to you. And thank you for the peace of God that you promise us. And if you're using this morning, Father, to draw someone to put their faith in you, may they respond in faith right now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um,
From the end of Romans 15, uh, what we've been using as a benediction throughout this entire series, I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for coming. Please don't leave without introducing yourself to someone around you. And uh, remember, we've got these folks up here to pray with you.